If you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and I've got to tell you that uh, uh, the more I study this book, the more I'm in this book, uh, the more I love this book. Hebrews in the 12th chapter. I'm not. Hebrews 13th chapter. Um, we stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. And show in respect to the Word of God as the people of old did. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city. And that is to come. He's talking about the new heavens and the earth. He's talking about heaven. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with a groaning, for that would not be that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. We are going to look at one phrase of this beautiful prayer. And that phrase is, now may the God of peace, who but up again from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the next time we will look at Christ as our shepherd and the good works and so forth. Let's go to prayer. Please pray for me uh, as I preach this text and pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we ask you to be with us. We thank you for the scriptures, Lord. We thank you for the fact that from Genesis to Revelation, they were about redemption through Christ. And ask you, O God, to be with me as I preach your word. Lord, help me, I ask. Give me unction of your spirit, clarity of thought. I pray that you would be with your people as they sit and listen. We pray that it would not be ordinary or humdrum or anything of the nature. And God, we pray that there would be an excitement of soul as we hear these great truths. Lord, bless your word to your people. We pray for conversions if there are people here that are not converted. We pray for uh, repentance if there are people here who are abiding in lawlessness, uh, things in which you disapprove. We pray, O oh God, if there are people here who are downcast and discouraged, that you would encourage them through your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible again and again refers to God as a God of peace. The word peace is used 254 times in the Old Testament, 86 times in the New Testament. And again and again throughout the scriptures, as you read them, it speaks to us about the goodness of God. 
But consider world history. In the last century, the United States was involved in two world wars. The first war was the war to end all war. And the League of Nations started. And it was as a result of some of the dictates of the treaty that led to the Second World War 25 years later. And it was worse than the First World War. Well, where was our God of peace? Consider man's inhumanity to man. Last year, we saw city after city after city burned, buildings destroyed. I saw a film of a man and his wife. These two men were beating his wife, and his husband came out and said, Leave my wife alone. They took a two-by-four to him. Uh, Where is our God of peace? In my own life, I have experienced very difficult days, very difficult trials, and I know many of you have as well. No small amount of trouble and challenges we have all faced. Where is our God of peace in those times? It is essential for you and for me to remember that this world that we live in is broken. It's going to stay broken. Until Christ comes back again, you're going to face times that are hard. Sometimes the things you face will be nothing more than an annoyance. Other times the things you face will be absolutely heartbreaking. And you may at that point say, I've lost my peace. Where is the God of peace? Christ warned us in Matthew 24, he said this, For there will be great tribulations such as is not seen uh, from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, the days are cut short. He also said this, In this world, he didn't say expect trouble. Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Well, the last phrase uh, in this verse, uh, these last section of the verses in 20, 20 and 21 of Hebrews 13, is a prayer. The verses 20 and 21, this is a prayer that the writer prays for the people. The rest of the verses give instruction for them and greetings and so forth. Well, this morning we're going to look at the prayer. And as we look at the prayer... We're going to see how it is that we understand and look at God as a God of peace. Let me tell you this. The only way to see God as a God of peace is through the cross of Calvary, through the redemption that Christ accomplished for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And because it is only that we see God's goodness through the sacrifice of Christ, It is there that we look to have peace in difficult times, for it's there where we learn to trust him. If we don't isolate the crucifixion, the death and resurrection of Jesus, redemption accomplished from the rest of the teachings of Scripture, but it is through the lens of the sacrifice of Christ that we see the goodness of God and see his hand of mercy in so many, many different ways. Three things. We're just going to look at one this morning. The resurrection of Christ demonstrates the God of peace. 
The resurrection of Christ demonstrates the God of peace. Now may the God of peace, he says here. Well, the appellations of God are used for our instruction uh, in the knowledge of God. Uh, people are nicknamed. For example, somebody may have red hair. They're called red. Somebody might be a very good pickpocket. They may be called fingers or the king of rock and roll or the fab four. When Joseph got married, uh, Melissa's father, Biff, gave Joseph a nickname because he played the bagpipes. It was Joey the Pipes. Sounds like a gangster name to me. He's Italian. So these words, these nicknames say something about the individual, about their personality or something that they do, except for Joseph, of course. He's not a gangster. He does play the bagpipes, though. At least he used to play very, very well. Well, in a similar fashion, the names of the Bible that God gives himself tells us something about God. Uh, Pink said, A.W. Pink said this, The varied manner in which God refers to himself in Holy Scripture are not reflected by caprice, but by infinite wisdom, and we lose much if we fail to weigh each one diligently. Every time the Bible gives us a name for God or God uses a name to describe himself, we think about it. Uh, Almighty God, uh, infinitely wise God, the thrice holy God is described in Isaiah and the sixth chapter. He is the everlasting father. Isaiah 9 and verse 6 has that beautiful description of Christ where he's called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, they're used. And so these names describe something about God. They're not used merely for the sake of variation, but each one individually tells us something about the God that you're here today to worship. We learn what he's like. We come to understand more about him. Just as this great phrase here, may the God of peace. And so these are important for us. They're instructive for us to enlighten us in the knowledge of God. Albert Barnes said this, God who is the, of concerning God being called the God of peace, God who is the author or the source of peace. The word peace in the New Testament is used to denote every kind of blessing or happiness is opposed to all who would distrust or trouble the mind and may refer, therefore, to reconciliation with God to a quiet conscience in the evidence of pardon sin, to health and prosperity, and the hope of heaven. And there it is again, tied into the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sake of his people. And the title contemplates God in relationship to his people. The God of peace cannot be used universally. There are the wicked. There are those who are the enemy of God. And we read in the Bible that God is angry with the wicked all the time. We also read in Scripture that the day will come when those who don't bow the knee to Christ, those who are opposed and don't respect the gospel or reject the gospel right out, that they will become the object of God's wrath and condemnation. But it is, as far as his people are concerned, and who are his people? His people are those who trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation and who will trust by God's grace in Jesus Christ for their salvation. The elect of God will come to faith. And it is those that we think of when we say that God is a God of peace. He is the God of reconciliation. He is the God who has taken us from being in the camp of the enemy to being his children. By his grace and by his working. 
And so we understand that those names mean something to us in order to encourage these believers to hold fast to Christ. What he does, he goes back and logically demonstrates through the entire book uh, the uh, superiority of Christ. Argumentum uh, fortior, arguing from the lesser to the greater all throughout the book. And so he begins by comparing Jesus uh, to things that are very much respected by these first century Jews. These are not 21st century believers uh, who sometimes doubt, who sometimes question. These are first century Jews who know the reality and believe in angels. They believe in Moses. They believe in Abraham. They understand these historical figures were quite true. And they love them and they respect them. And so he begins by saying, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten thee? And the answer is none. So again, trying to build up, who is Christ really? Well, he's greater than the angels. He compares him to Moses. And in the Old Testament, God spoke to Moses, peh el peh, face to face. And he promises in the Old Testament to raise up a prophet greater than Moses. Well, that prophet's Christ. He compares it to Melchizedek. And these first century Jews knew and respected who Melchizedek was. For one thing, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. He was priest of God most high. And he's saying that Christ is like that. Melchizedek's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Why? Well, he was not from the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek was not. He had no ancestry. You cannot point out how he was properly a priest. Well, Jesus came from the wrong tribe to be a priest. He came from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And there was no record of Melchizedek's death. So Christ, then, is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus Christ, listen to this, fulfilled all the prophecies, all that was predicted about the one to come in himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And that work that God did to bring peace between himself and us, as he speaks of here in the text. Uh, where does the writer go to tell us how God established that peace? Again, he is throughout the book of Hebrews talking about the superiority of Christ, talking about Christ as the high priest. But where does he go to speak to us about the peace that you have with God? Well, does he go to the law? No. Does he go to your works? No, it's the very next phrase in the text. Now may the God of peace who brought again up from the dead our Lord Jesus. He goes to Christ and he goes to the crucifixion of Christ. The fact that Jesus was dead. He calls our attention to the death of Jesus. The death of Christ was no ordinary death. Death is part and parcel to this world. You've lost family members, fathers, mothers, aunts and uncles. You have lost people that you know and people that you love, grandparents. Death is part and parcel to this world. It's not natural. It's a direct result of sin. But it is part and parcel to living in this world. But the Bible 
puts a great deal of emphasis on the death of Christ. Consider, it was predicted in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 paints a very clear picture of the sufferings of Christ to come. Uh, It is focused on in all of the Gospels. And you hear Jesus talk, he was determined to die. Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is lifted up on the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Quoting from Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7, listen to this. This was written 700 years before Christ was born. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting but the Lord gave, uh, the Lord uh, God helps me, therefore I will not be disgraced, therefore I will set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. This is a reference to Christ, and it may be that when Luke quotes this or says this, he was determined to go, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, he was not going to be deterred from going to the cross of Calvary. He set his face, we read here. And the disciples tried to talk him out of it. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so beautifully put here in Isaiah 56 and 7, he says, I will not be put to shame. What is Christ thinking here? What's the prophet saying here about Jesus? That though he was going to suffer, and though he was going to be brutalized, and though he was going to die, nonetheless, he would not be put to shame because he was going to be raised from the dead. Isaiah is predicting that. Christ told us that. He told his disciples that. And we understand the sufferings of Christ were extreme on two fronts. The sufferings of Christ were extreme on a physical level. No one ever suffered like this man suffered. And consider who they were so mistreating. God's son. God in the flesh. His physical sufferings were extreme. He went to the garden and he asked uh, these three closest to him to come with him and pray with him. And they fell asleep, you know, Uh, of someone who came up to him, betrayed him by a kiss, which is supposed to be an expression of love and friendship. He was taken before a hostile crowd. He was taken before those who hated him and sneered at him. Uh, He was taken to uh, a... uh, a typical politician who was more concerned about his popularity than about truth. Though Pilate tried to give him, uh, him freedom, and he knew that what they were doing, what they were doing from jealousy. And yet he washed his hands in front of him and said, you take him and kill him. I have nothing to do with it. He had the power to stop it, but he didn't do it. Don't ever forget that about Pilate. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was handed over to be crucified. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns, pressed it down upon his head so hard that it cut him And blood streaming down, streaming down. They put a robe on him. They blindfolded him, hit him and said, prophesy, which one of us hits you? They gave him a cane and they beat him with a cane. They took him out and they uh, nailed him to a cross to hang there long enough to suffocate. That's how you died from crucifixion, the suffocation. But as you read about all these things that are described and all these things that are written about our Savior, if this doesn't touch your heart, you've got a pretty hard heart. Or you're just not thinking. This happened to Jesus. 
so it wouldn't happen to you. You got that? This happened to Christ, the Son of God, the one who created the world, we read in the Scriptures. It was created by Him and for Him, we read in the Scriptures. Looking back at the eternality of Christ as one who is a part of the Godhead, the second person of the Godhead, took flesh upon Himself, truly God and truly man, who would be able to be bled if He was cut, who would be able to die if He was placed upon the cross of Calvary. Roman soldiers had a reputation of being very cruel. They certainly showed it in their treatment of Jesus. But you remember what Jesus said as he hung upon the cross of Calvary. Father, forgive them. They have no clue. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize who I am. They have no idea what they're doing. Father, forgive them. A cry for mercy. A prayer for mercy for those who were killing him. Well, we understand this, that Jesus came for this purpose. Jesus came to die. He came to be mistreated. Now, he did many other things. We know that. He preached. He taught. He healed people. Uh, He demonstrated compassion. He demonstrated love. He taught us great things. But the climax of his work, the zenith of his um, job was the suffering on the cross of Calvary began in the garden and found its climax as he was hanging on the cross of Calvary. And redemption was accomplished. You know what the scriptures tell us when he died. The curtain that divided the most holy place from the rest of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Christ had opened the doors. We have access to God now. He had done the work Such anguish in the life of this man who had worked miracles, who had raised the dead, who had put demons to flight. Why was he acting with such burden about death? Because it wasn't simply the cross. It was the humiliation. It's what happened to him while he was on the cross of Calvary. That's why. We go back to Isaiah 53 and verse 10. It says this, it pleased the Lord to crush him. And so that though the Greek, I mean, the, uh, the, the Roman soldiers, the Greeks and the Jews were to blame for what they did. We know that from Scripture. Ultimately, it was God behind the whole thing. And it was God who was putting him to such grief. As Christ on the cross of Calvary experienced wrath and condemnation of God. And understand this. Every time you lose control and become angry and have a fit of anger, Christ felt that. Every time your heart is filled with ungodly lust, Christ felt that. Every time you delight in putting people down and saying hurtful words, Christ felt that. Every time you ignore God's law or you get involved in gossip, even among fellow believers, Christ felt that. When you grumble and complain about providence or your station in life, or you grumble and complain about being asked to do something at the church, Christ felt that. He experienced God's great displeasure of your sin and mine. On the cross of Calvary. So we know why he cried out. 
as it's written in Matthew, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And you know how it translates. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was so you go to heaven. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Why do we come to church? Fellowship is a part of it. We come to hear the word of God read and preached. That we may be more in awe of God's great love for us. Because it wasn't simply the fact that he came because it had to be done. He came because he loved us. That's why Christ came. That's why he died, because of the love of God for us sinful people. And it is a declaration, Romans 1, 4, concerning his son, who was a descendant from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And you see then, as the writer thinks back on all these things he's written about Christ, he's our great high priest. He knows how to sympathize with us. We have not a high priest who cannot sympathize, but one who can sympathize with us. And he's opened the doors of glory for us, that we may go there in prayer and find grace to help in time of need. He sees all that and all that God has done. He says, now, may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead, The Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you, the God of peace. So now we see how it is that he is properly called the God of peace. Consider the nature of the peace negatively. The peace Christ established was not a peace at any price. It was not at the cost of justice, not at the cost of righteousness. Positively, it was initiated by God. It's God's idea. It is an abiding peace, a peace that passes all understanding in the deepest and fullest sense. John Newton was the captain of a ship. He was a slave trader. He brought slaves in to the United States, to England, to England. He was on a ship, and the ship... Got in a great storm. Ship was sinking. There were some Moravians, people who kind of had come from John Huss, Bohemian reformer, on the ship prayed. They had no fear. They were calm. That had an impact upon John Newton. John Newton started praying. The storm ceased. So the question is, how do we deal with the storms of life? John Newton grew close to God. He was converted and became a great man of God. His eyes were open and he saw God to be his father. Well, in the storms of life, what will be your view of God? Would it change? If you lost something very dear to you, would your view of God change? So that you didn't really see him as a God of peace. Well, see, at that point, you're looking away from the cross of Calvary. You're looking away from redemption. The richest answer to what we can say to what a Christian is, and this is, I get this from, from both two people, 
Jerry Packer, and Charlie Chase. The definition of the Christian is one who sees God as his father. We are told to call him father. And it is, as we understand, he loves us as a perfect father. That's what a Christian is. He sees God as his father. The best book uh, that I know of that has a great chapter on God adoption as God, we are his children, is the book, uh, the chapter called Sons of God and Knowing God. Again, Jerry Packer wrote that. And I will remind you of this, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed to us. The sufferings of this life are not worthy to compare to the glory that shall be revealed to us when? When our Father calls us home. Or when Christ comes back and the dead shall be raised. The present sufferings will be a thing of the past and they don't compare to the great glory that shall be revealed to us and in us as we rule and worship for all eternity. Yes, she's gone. Let it be gone. We've got better things to come. Do you trust Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Then trust God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has redeemed us for himself. He is the God of peace. Let's pray.